sports going. I'm so grateful that there are people like Kevin and Stephanie and Robbie and Janelle. Because as you heard last week, numbers of me, like this place would not be here if it were up to me. Because I don't know how to do any of that. We'd be meeting in a cardboard box somewhere and it'd be tight. Uh, but that's awesome. And I appreciate that a lot. Uh, today, we are going to be um, finishing up our study in the book of Ephesians. Um, in the uh, letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you or a Bible app or some way of following along, if you'd like to, if you'll go to Ephesians chapter 6, please. So for the last three weeks, we have been doing a, a, a deep dive into Paul's challenge to our relationships, how it is that we're going to express the values of Christ into our closest relationships. And he specifically was dialing into our 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 home to the to the home life and we you know we went uh, pretty in depth on that you know i don't know how are we doing on that i mean uh, i i guess what i mean is i came at that from a direction you might not have anticipated uh so are we cool i mean like i mean you're here so that means something i suppose today we're going to get into a passage of scripture that's also pretty well known it's an imagery that paul employs that and we've made art about and written a lot of songs about. And uh, we're going to dig in to the imagery here this morning and see what we can learn from what it is that Paul says and how it's going to apply to our lives. And and don't worry if you're holding your breath thinking that I'm going to say, and it doesn't mean what you thought it meant at all. I'm not doing that t- today. Uh, but, uh, but I believe the imagery that he's going to present is pretty straightforward, albeit... I do think that there's an application to it that we are not as readily attuned to. And we'll get into that when we, we get there. But uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Paul's famous passage about the armor of God as he gives his final thoughts in wrapping up his letter. If you remember, first part of Ephesians, first uh, four chapters, uh, first three chapters rather, is is some pretty dense theology that Paul lays out for us, a challenge for us to grasp the revelation of the good news. And the revelation of the good news as he presents it is that God is breaking into this world to make all things new, to do the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There's a new world that's coming. And not only that, but we are participants in that. We are the new humanity that results from Christ's work and what he, he's done. We're the people of the overlap. We talked about that a little bit, the, the, the overlap between the the, the fallen age and the age to come, we're right in between there as we wait for Christ's return. And then the, the last part of the book we've been looking at is Paul's practical applications of this revelation. In other words, you know, how should we live if we believe this revelation is true about what God is up to? One of the main points of emphasis in this letter has been about unity, uh, how we are all one in Christ, how but God's plan was that both Jews and Gentiles together would form this new humanity, that we would be this one temple, that we would be this one tree. He just kept emphasizing that. All of it bearing witness, he said, against the powers, the powers of the air, or as we described it, that's something in the air that drives societal movements to division and hatred and war and all the things we've seen all through the history of the world. He challenged us to find unity without uniformity, in chapter 4, which requires humility on our part and a work of the Holy Spirit to be able to, to look past our differences and still find that unity in Christ. And then he encouraged us to put out the, the dead ways that we were used to living in 
and put on this, this new life that's founded in God's wisdom. And that's what we've been looking at over the, the last several weeks. Now we're going to come to his wrap-up. And if you're there in Ephesians 6, we're going to pick up where we left off last week as Paul gives us his, his final thoughts, thoughts. In fact, that's the way he even words it. Verse 10, he says, A final word, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that y'all will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. All right, so Paul is circling back to the subject matter that he brought up in chapters 2 and 3, the unseen powers that oppose God's purposes and then hence oppose us when we align with God's purposes. It's that something in the air that causes human societies to develop practices and ideologies that are at odds with God's intent and God's purposes for the creation that he made. Paul describes them as evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, evil spirits in heavenly places or literally evil spirits in the air, uh, powers in the air. Back in chapters 2 and 3, Paul made the point that, that we, the unified church, stand as witnesses against the divisive powers in the air by maintaining our unity in Christ. So he's wrapping up his thoughts. He's coming back, he's picking up all these former themes that he had, and he's bringing them all here to, to wrap them up. And notice the emphasis he's putting on the nature of these powers. They are spiritual in nature. And the reason I believe he's making that point of emphasis is because of what he said in verse 12. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Our enemies, our enemy, the Satan, is a spiritual enemy. Remember, the gospel, according to Paul in chapter 2, is a unifying force. This is the way he describes it back there. He says that this is God's plan, that he was drawing all ethnicities and cultures together in Christ. And, and, and here he's reinforcing our calling by, uh, in this by reminding us that God's armor isn't intended to fight or to divide us, to divide us from our fellow human being. God wants it to be clear as he's speaking through Paul that the enemy of God's kingdom is never another human being. So he emphasizes the spiritual nature of our true enemy. And that spiritual power manifests by dividing people. Something that we really got to keep in mind in this day and age, at this point in time, in our present culture, something we have to keep in mind, that the work of the power in the air is divisive, is all about dividing us. That's the nature of our enemy's work, fanning the flames of us versus them. And it stirs wars and injustice and power over people as we've seen all through history. It divides us into competing and hostile people groups. And Paul said back in chapter 3, God's big plan was to create a new humanity who's been freed from what's in the air. People who are no longer pushed and pulled by the spiritual forces that divide along lines of ethnicity or gender or economics or political affiliations or any of the stuff that the spirit of the age urges us to divide about. And remember, this enemy we have, it's not human. 
It is not human. And in terms of the inspiration behind it, it's not even human institutions. It is the Satan, the only true enemy behind any of this. And I believe, I, I honestly believe Paul's emphasizing this here, the spiritual nature of our enemy, because he's going to employ some aggressive military language. And he wants our focus to be in the right place when we apply this. He's, he's using a military metaphor. He's going to use it some more here. Uh, but he's not urging us to be militant in our interactions with our fellow humans. See, and here's the thing. One of the terrible byproducts of living in a secularized, materialistic society like we are presently in, I don't think anybody would question that, uh, is we have lost the idea of transcendence, meaning we've lost the idea or, or a sense of reality behind something that's beyond what we can physically apprehend or comprehend. Our society no longer considers our morals to be moored to any transcendent good. And we see that played out in the unrestrained sexuality of our culture and the prevalent violence and rage and, and hyper-individualism. But there's another side to this as well. Because our culture no longer has a view of transcendent evil. So that the only enemy we can ever imagine is another human being out there. So we focus on those who we disagree with, whether it's political faction or whatever faction we find, and we see them as the monsters that we have to defeat. Why? Because we've lost transcendence. We've lost the reality of a transcendent evil at work in this world as well. And Paul won't have it. (laughs) He wants us to take a stand and resist the powers, but he makes it clear those powers are not people. Paul wants us to resist what's in the air. Those mysterious spiritual forces that push and pull societies away from God's intent. Those forces that, that pose a threat to the unity of the church, to the unity that is our witness to the powers, that, that God is bringing heaven to earth, that there is a new humanity in the mix that isn't res- chained to and, and responding to what's in the air. So Paul says, armor up and get ready to take a stand together. Because remember, all of his instructions here in this book are in the plural that, you know, you all will, y'all will be able to stand for, for this is for practice by a community of people. So let's read about this armor of God in verse 13. He says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil, I just want to point out that the usage of that word resist is important because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the one thing about God's armor is it's all passive. It's all in the defensive mode. There's nothing that's offensive about it at all, which is not true, patently not true by the usage of that word resist because it carries with it, in the Greek especially, the idea of moving forward, of, of progression there. So he says, then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Y'all will be standing firm. Stand y'all's ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
Okay. It's a fascinating metaphor that Paul uh, presents us with. It's actually not the only place he uses this metaphor. This is, he mentions uh, in, in Romans 13, 12, he mentions putting on the armor of light. And he tells us to live protected by the armor of faith and love, wearing the helmet of the confidence of our salvation in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. So it's a, a familiar metaphor for Paul. He, he uses this more than once. And he spells the metaphor out as he goes. He talks about wrapping ourselves in God's truth as a belt. You know, God's, the truth of God's good news of what it is that God is doing that holds us all together. That especially if we think about this in the community context of holding us together in, in this. Uh, he talks about protecting our hearts with the body armor of God's righteousness and, you know, his rightness, his virtue, his justice, guarding our hearts w- with that. Tells us to strap our feet in the, the peace that comes from the good news, the gospel, and and to carry a shield of faith, the conviction that God is true to his promise of a new world, which then has the effect of extinguishing the flaming arrows of the the paneros, the evil. That's the same word Jesus uses in, in his Lord's prayer that he gives us to pray, deliver us from evil. It's the same word there. Sometimes it's synonymous with the devil or the Satan, but it also means hardships and trials and harassments and challenges to our trust in God. That can even just be circumstantial things that come into our life that make us question, is God even here? Does he even care? Paul says that that, that our conviction that God will set all things right one day, our trust that the message of the gospel is true is what will quench the the effect of that trouble or that harassment from what's in the air or the circumstances that we face, it will quench that effect and and help us, enable us to stay the course in following this gospel. He says the salvation that we've received is a helmet. So again, we look at all the different ways in which this is affecting us. It protects our minds. It, It gives us a new way of thinking, a new way of processing so that we're not being informed by the spirit of the age, but informed by the new humanity, the wisdom of God. And he talks about the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, which slices through the adversity. It reminds us of what's true when we're bombarded on all sides with different messages, with different ideologies, with different perspectives. God's truth comes back as that one thing we can look at and say, I know this is true. I hold on to this as true. Uh, so now we normally will read this in a in a very individualistic way we read it as a challenge to like the way i've heard it a lot and we have preached it before is you know every day see to it that we've we've pictured ourselves armored up for the day's challenges you know see to it that you know that that we're ready and prepared to face what's coming and listen i'm not saying that we normally do that and we shouldn't that's there's nothing wrong with that that's a great in fact it's probably one facet of how it is that we're meant to apply what Paul is talking about here. It, it certainly is, is, is a good process to go through. But I do want us to remember that Paul is applying this in a corporate sense. So he's telling a community like this. He's telling us as a group of people to put on this armor as though the community is a singular person uh, out facing these things. And when we look at it like that, it forces us to wonder about how this metaphor actually does get applied. I mean, doesn't it? They, you have to stop and think for a minute more on that. Like as an individual, 
I get the particulars that, you know, I need to guard my heart with the armor of God's righteousness, God's rightness, by focusing on what's right in God's estimate, you know, keeping that at the forefront of my decision making. I can get that. But how does that work as a community? Like, how do we do this corporately as a group of people? How does that, what did Paul have in mind here? What does it look like for a church, a group of people to put on God's armor? Maybe it means to look out for each other. I, I mean, just thinking it through, you know, in the, in the ancient Roman uh, phalanx, they would overlap their shields. Uh, uh, they, in fact, the way the shields were set up, there was actually a little extra space so that they would guard the person next to them as they were doing the fighting. Maybe it's, it's something like that. Something else to think about in this, though, is that Paul did not come up with this armor analogy himself. He's actually quoting an Old Testament prophet in this. In Isaiah 59, the prophet there is speaking for God, and he's talking about Israel's long history of, of rebellion and failure, how no one cares about being fair or honest. There's no justice among the people. They know nothing about right living, all the things he's listing off. And then he says in, in Isaiah 59:16 that he, that is God, was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. And then he describes God himself stepping in to undo the enemy. So it's a messianic prophecy there. And in another messianic prophecy in Isaiah 52, Messiah is described as having beautiful feet because they carry him as he brings the peace of the good news. Exactly the same wording that Paul is using here. Paul constructs his picture of armor using all these descriptions from Isaiah about Messiah and what Messiah is going to do. And in Romans 13, I mentioned earlier when Paul said in verse 12, you know, remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of light. And then in verse 14, he explains what he's talking about when he says that. And he says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So from his thinking, putting on the armor of God has to do with clothing ourselves in Christ. I believe when Paul is calling the church a community to armor up, I believe he's saying the church wears God's armor by having a singular emphasis on Christ. And that makes sense to me. If the threat to the church is division, as he said in chapters 2 and 3, then a singular emphasis on our mutual acceptance in Jesus is the best defense that we're ever going to have towards division. Much like what he said in 1 Corinthians 2. He, He said to them, I determined when I came among you, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How does the church community put on God's armor? By seeing to it that we are embedded in Christ's priorities and his mission. So that our main message is Jesus. When people come to see us, when people look at this community, the emphasis needs to be Jesus. So that our values on our priorities are grounded in Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. Which means then that our actions will be showing off the love of Jesus towards the human race. That means that no matter what the political pundits are screaming and hollering about, our words must be Jesus' words. 
that the cultural changes swirl around us like a storm. Our message is the unchanging grace of Jesus Christ. And then after the battle, Paul says, we'll be standing firm because as a church, we were hidden in Christ. No matter what changes take place, no matter what's going on, we're embedded in Jesus, in his message, in his purposes in this world. Because there's a lot in this broken world that threatens the church and especially our unity as the church. There's something in the air that pushes us into factions. In the midst of all of this chaotic noise, let our message be Jesus and him alone. Jesus alone will be the armor that's going to be able to defend us from what's going on in this world. That's the armor that keeps us whole, that belt of truth that holds us together, individuals and as a community of people. Okay, we'll move on. Verse verse 18, he says, Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so that I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan. And what is his plan, Paul? That the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. He's bringing it back, right back to what he was talking about before. It's about this unifying work of God, the unification of humanity under Christ. He says, I'm in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. It's very possible that praying in the Spirit is meant to be connected with the armor metaphor. Uh, Maybe he's describing the demeanor in which we would be wearing it and wielding a sword of truth. uh, Klein Snodgrass wrote in his commentary on Ephesians, Paul underscores how important prayer is for all of life. The believer's entire life is one large prayer to God. And, And this is probably what he has in mind when he urges us to be praying at all times. And of course... We see he keeps the corporate community view by encouraging not just prayer for personal needs, which is usually our go-to thing, but but to be praying for all believers everywhere, including himself, because he's an ambassador for Jesus, but he's in chains, which seems like a contradiction, but not for people of the overlap uh, between this evil age and the age to come. So I believe his point, when it comes to this armor metaphor, I believe his point is this, that we put on the armor of God by being in communication with God, by praying by being connected to God in our hearts, in our minds, in our thinking. Just like a GPS map will will keep us on track as we travel. Prayer will keep us alert and lined up with, with God's intents and purposes. We're communicating with him about these things. So that when things happen in this world that shock us or disturb us, instead of taking to Facebook to express our outrage, we'll take to our knees and pray for God's intervention and help for a change in these things through his power, through his spirit. It's, it's possible that we get thrown sometimes when we read things like this from Paul saying, pray at all times. Because I don't know, you know, for me, like when I first heard that, I was overwhelmed by that. I was like, well, how do you order McDonald's if you're praying all the Lord, please help this person see I need a chicken sandwich and fries. But I believe his point is that we can always be in communication with God. One old preacher said once, 
many, many years ago, I never pray longer than five minutes, but I never go longer than five minutes without praying. And I don't know how you would track something like that. So I'm sure he's just making a statement, but, but I think there's a point to be made in that. Prayer doesn't have to be a big production. Uh, you know, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. It can be just a line of thinking. I think about God a lot. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, Mike Iaconelli was talking about meeting up with a lady who was an intercessor once, and he was freaked out saying, you know, you pray all the time, and I can barely keep my mind on God at all. But she said, but you think about God, don't you? And he, he said, well, yes. And she goes, those are prayers. Our thoughts about God, our thoughts are connected to him. He's not just waiting for those magic words before he's, you know, turning, tuning in. He's listening. He listens to us. He's with us. He inhabits us. He and the son have made their home in our hearts. Of course, he's listening. Oftentimes, you know, I, I'll, I'll just be in ongoing conversation. Certainly, you know, it's one of those things. You'll go through life. You, you begin to think, uh, uh, something happens or whatever that maybe perplexes or confuses. I, I talk to God. I complain to God. I thank God. Uh, it becomes a habit over time. It just becomes part of the process of a day going by. I mean, I still have times of intentional, you know, if you're sitting and thinking, well, that guy never prays. I, it, I still have <laughs> times of intentional focused prayer. Oftentimes I will read prayers because my thoughts ping around so much. I'll read a prayer, which helps get my mind focused and, leads me into deeper communication. But throughout the day, I'm always asking or remarking or considering things, assuming God is my audience. And then I'll take time to listen with myself as God's audience to see if there's anything that he's going to communicate back. And sometimes he'll communicate back things through his word that just pop into my head. Uh, I just want to encourage us to demystify prayer a a little bit, Uh, you know, to start a conversation like you would with a friend, just going through your day. He's there. He loves you. He cares about you. He cares about all of us. So certainly he's interested and he's not waiting for it to be the right formulation of words. There's no, you know, he doesn't have a scorecard. Oh, that was a really good prayer there. That's a 10. I'll give you, you know, you'll get that one answered. <laughs> speak to him like you'd speak to a friend because you don't have a friend any better than him. You really don't. There is no one who knows you like he knows you and loves you to the degree that he loves you. You've never had a friend like him. So certainly we would want to, to take up that habit. And I believe that's what Paul is getting at when he's saying pray at all times. Don't wait till Sunday morning. I'll pray there. Matt will lead us in prayer. That'll be good. Pray. Pray throughout the day. Have a conversation with a God who loves you, who cares about you, who's interested and what's going on in your life. See where it goes from there. All right, Paul closes his letter, verse 21. He says, to bring you up to date, and, you know, a lot of this is 2,000 years old, so a lot of us is like, okay. Uh, To bring you up to date, Tychicus will give you a full report about what I'm doing and how I'm getting along. He's a beloved brother and a faithful helper in the Lord's work. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we're doing and to encourage you. Peace be with you, dear brothers and sisters. And may God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you love and faithfulness. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We assume this is the same Tychicus from the letter to the Colossians. Paul sends him with this letter. 
and assures them that he's going to answer any questions that they have concerning his well-being or what's going on with him. He closes with a benediction that, in like most of his letters, emphasizes God's peace, love, and grace, which he then commits to those eternally, to those who love Jesus. And I think that's a fitting place to close a study like this. It's been an interesting journey through this, but I, I love that we're right here at the end of receiving all of this instruction, and he closes it up with asking us to receive God's peace and his love and his grace. So I hope you got something uh, out of this uh, study in the book of Ephesians. I know I did. And, and my prayer is, is that we'll all have a fresh revelation of Jesus. How through his life and his death and his resurrection, God has created a new humanity. We are no longer chained to the evil of this age. We are a people of the overlap, living now in anticipation of the new world that Jesus is bringing. So let's embrace this challenge from Paul. Let's, let's live lives that reflect that hope into the world where we've been placed, the hope that God is making all things new, the hope that there's a transcendent good, the realization there's a transcendent evil, and that God's purpose in all of this is to bring salvation, to bring healing, and to bring hope. Uh, let's see what happens when we do that. Let's see what happens in the world where we've been placed if we live these values out and reflect that hope into the, into the place where we live, into the place where we work, into our own families. Right on? All right. Listen, this is the last Sunday of the month, and um, this is our fitting time, I think, to be celebrating the communion of the bread and cup. Uh, it's, it's a reminder of who we are, because of Jesus, we've talked about that throughout all of this letter that we've been studying. It's a meal that remembers Jesus' sacrificial love for us, but it also reinforces... Oh, thank you so much, Shirley. It, it, it reinforces our place in God's family. So the night that Jesus was betrayed, he got together with his disciples. As best we can tell, he was there to celebrate the Passover meal. And as he was going through all the elements of the Passover meal, he made some changes to it. He, he took the bread, the Ephicomen bread, the dessert bread. He was breaking it apart and handing it out to his disciples. And he said, I want you to eat this, take this, eat this. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I'm sure that was a stunning thing for the disciples to hear that night. I don't think they were expecting that at all. It's taken 2,000 years for us to process what he's talking about still. But we believe what he's meaning in that is that through his sacrificial death, we're now reconciled to God. He, in his body, bore the full consequence of sin, took it away from us and released us into God's forgiveness. And after the, the Passover meal, he would have taken the cup of redemption. And he said, drink this. He's passing the cup around. He said, this is my blood. This is a new covenant. That's the way he works. This is a new covenant in my blood poured out for you. The covenant is a is a uh, basically a legal, you could say, relationship with someone, a binding relationship. Jesus has bound us back to God through his sacrificial death on the cross for us. You've heard me say many times before, I don't understand the mechanics of that. I'm not going to be able to say, say exactly this, this, and this led to this, this, and this. What I know is... The Bible plainly says, Jesus Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
through his death, we've been given forgiveness of sins and the promise of new life. And I know from experience that's true. I know that his death on my behalf has changed me fundamentally, elementally, through and through. And, and the fact that he does this in, in this in the context of community reminds us you know, we're not all by ourselves kicking through this broken world trying to find some meaning. We're actually part of God's expanded, multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic family all around the world. We belong to something so much bigger than ourselves, so much bigger than this room full of people. We belong to God's family. And that's something to celebrate. So we're going to pray over the elements here. If you have any food allergies, you'll want to come to the table here in the front. We've also got a table in the back. We're going to pray over this. Matt and the band are going to play some music. Go get the elements. You can take them as a group of people together wherever you are. Or you can go back to your seat and and take it uh, privately and quietly before the Lord, however you feel led. If you've got your children here, we have no rules or parameters on that. I mean, man, our kids imitate so many awful things we do. I'm happy if they imitate one decent thing we're doing throughout uh, the, the week. So uh, we'll take these elements. But in all of this, remember the love that was shown to us in, in what it is that we're celebrating. And let that love be reflected towards our fellow person. So while we're here, let's Give a few high fives and hugs or handshakes, whatever you're comfortable with, acknowledging and recognizing one another so that nobody is isolated or marginalized, but we're all drawn in to God's big plan and God's purpose in restoring all things. Right on? All right, let's pray over these elements. Father, we thank you for what it is that Jesus has done for us. We thank you so much, Father, that we have life through him. Lord, once we were chained in the darkness, driven by the forces, the, the, that something in the air that led us to destructive and self-destructive patterns that, that dehumanized us in so many ways. But like you said in Isaiah, you stepped in yourself when there was no one. There was no Moses who endured. Moses fell short. There was no David who could follow through. David fell short. You, Lord God, in the person of Jesus Christ, stepped in and you rescued us by laying down your life on our behalf. You've taken the full consequence of sin and we acknowledge that and receive that today. We recognize that we fall short. We recognize that we ourselves are sinners. But you have forgiven us. You have cleansed us and you are leading us home by the renewing of our spirits through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we count this cup as representative of your blood. We take that recognizing a new relationship with you, not based on our efforts or abilities, but based solely on the fact that you love us. We take this bread, recognizing it as a symbol of your body, which went to the cross and bore away all the consequence, the death that we deserved, You bore it away and took it to yourself so that we could live. Let our lives be meaningful. Let our lives carry your love into this world. I pray that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Feel free to come on up and take the elements or in the back if you're back there.
Why don't you join us in one more song before we go? What creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry? Then from north to south and east to west, we'd hear Christ be magnified. Were the whole earth echoing His imminence, His name would burst from sea and sky, from rivers to the mountain tops. We hear Christ be magnified. in me and oh Christ be magnified from the altar of my life Christ be magnified in me when every creature finds its inmost melody every stand strong and worship you if it puts me in the fire i'll rejoice because you're there too i won't be formed by feelings i'll hold fast to what is true if the cross brings transformation i'll be crucified with you because death is just a doorway into resurrection life if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you in your rise. When you return in glory, all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing, my song will be the same. Oh, Christ be magnified, let His praise arise. Christ be in me and oh Christ be magnified from the altar of my life
Pray this prayer together before we leave here today. If you have uh, any needs that you'd like us to pray for, come on up. There'll be people at the front here to pray for you. Uh, we can anoint you with oil and pray and see what God will do. Uh, but other than that, let's, uh, let's pray this prayer together. Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven. Provide for our daily needs. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace, you children of God.